Lord, would you now give us a living moment with yourself? Meet us, Lord, we pray in your own name. Amen. You may be seated, friends. So today is the perfect day to be a newcomer because we're all newcomers today. What a privilege it is to begin a new church. What a privilege it is in the reality of this spinning globe to have the opportunity to sow a seed of the beginning of a new bit of Christ's body. It's an amazing thing. It's a great excuse. One of you told me on the way in that you were, I guess, stopping in the coffee shop or at the playground or something, and somebody said, you guys look like you're all ready to go somewhere. She said, yeah, we're going to church. And they said, oh, that's interesting. They said, yeah, it's, it's a new church. It's just beginning. It's a great excuse. I was talking to my friend who's the owner of my favorite bakery and just checking in, happened upon the, the place as she was closing up. So it was just the two of us chatting, and she had a little time. So I said, how you doing? You know, you got limited hours in the bakery because of COVID and all the rest. And how's that going? And she said, you know, actually it's working for me. And she's explaining why the limited hours were working and so on. She said, what about you? Anything new in your life? So I told her. And you know what she said? She said something I can't repeat, but I so wish I could because it was so good. She's like, that's bad. <laughs> so I called up Andrew. I'm like, Andrew, I got a new name. What do you think? Anglican church, right? He's like, no, Tim, I don't think so. Okay, never mind. So I, I am hearing three things as I share the happy news with folks. I'm hearing three things. These are not mean, they're not angry. They're just, they're just people saying, really? Really? You know, the first thing people say to me is they go, on the North Shore? And they say, you know, barely anybody on the North Shore bothers with church. And they say, and secondly, Tim, you're, you're always talking about racial diversity in the body of Christ. And you know, I mean, the North Shore? I say, hey, you know what? The fact that hardly anybody on the North Shore bothers with church is kind of the point, right? The famous poll, the Gallup poll that came out during the week lead up to Easter, that for the first time ever, more than half of Americans no longer go to church. And if you, and if you take that data and you look at it in terms of the generations, it, you know, it, it, it's not flat. That's a, that's a piece of Anglican understatement right there. It's, it's not flat across the generations, right? You all know how that works. You know what that means. Racial diversity on the North Shore. What I've learned is there's more of it than we think. I mean, yeah, it's not Queens. Okay, granted, it's not Roxbury. You know, it's not the city. I get it. But there's more of it than we think. Also, there's more of it than we think right here where the Lord has put us as a seed. So maybe the Lord's going to use our being here to help us to learn about that and to help us to learn how to do that well. So that's, that's one thing I've been hearing. The other thing I've been hearing, people know me a little better and they're a little, you know, a little, more, uh, a little more direct and they'll say to me, you, at your age? I'm like, well, you know what? It's truly not about me. It's about a call. It's about us. It's about the body of Christ. And they look at me and they're like, well, yeah, that's the sanctimonious answer. And I'm like, okay, fine. You want to know what? Go find an icon of the Apostle Paul. You'll find out he didn't have much hair either. <laughs> and nobody bothered him about his age. 
And then comes the real one. Then they work their way to the one that expresses what's in their heart, I mean, just what's real in their heart. And they say, so really, on the North Shore with a new church, with however many people that is, all, you know, up in a seminary campus, you really think you're going to have any impact on those issues of the world that you care so much about. And I say, okay, now we're in the real zone. Now you're sharing what's real and what you're really thinking. And I want to say this morning that a completely reasonable human question, but not the right question. The earliest followers of Jesus, friends, the earliest followers of Jesus did not ask that question. They lived in a world, weirdly enough, that was actually a lot like ours. They lived in a world that had all kinds of levels of crazy brokenness. They lived in a world with sex trafficking. They lived in a world with the uber, uber rich and the super, super poor. They lived in a world where, you know, a completely class stratified Roman empire. They lived in a world that had all the same problems ours had and in mega scale. And who are they? They're these tiny little groups of people gathering in homes. I mean, they don't even have the nice stuff we've got out here. And they're gathering in homes, and, and it isn't too long before they're on the outside, and it's even dangerous. But they never asked that question. It never occurred to them to ask that question. What happened with the earliest followers of Jesus was simply that they, either they themselves or someone they knew or someone they knew who knew, had experienced something qualitatively different from anything else that anyone had ever heard about. It's the beginning of John's first letter, right? That which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have felt. They experienced rather someone. They experienced Jesus Christ. In the earliest followers of Jesus, they, they, made, they paid a lot of attention to the concentric circles, right? So-and-so's coming to your town. Listen to him. He knew the Lord. So-and-so is coming to your town. Listen to him. He knew so-and-so who knew the Lord, right? They paid attention to the layers of connection back to the experience of the living Jesus Christ, both when he was pre-death and resurrection, when he was a man living the greatest life that's ever been lived with the most ripples by any single person in all of history, and also those who knew him, saw him, resurrected. And they're living in the rippling shockwaves of this moment. And they're going, wow, what is that? All we know is death is defeated. And a human being has passed through the worst things that could be done to one and has come through bulletproof on the other side. And People are responding. And the question they asked was not, well, look at all the stuff we're against. I mean, how can little old us? The question they asked was, how can we live that life and the experience of that man? How can we live that to the world around us and ourselves amongst ourselves? That's the question they wrestled with. And weirdly enough, it's been a couple of decades now that it's been noted that the turn from modernity in the West to post-modernity in the West has made us a world, a society, a lot like the society that the earliest Christians were in. 
Now, that, that probably didn't mean a lot unless you, you know, spend your time with your nose stuck in ancient history books, which is not a bad place to, to have your nose stuck. But, you know, the point is, maybe then we can learn from them because they had nothing except this confidence in Jesus Christ. And yet, they did, in fact, end up changing the world not by stressing themselves over it, oddly enough. So this morning, let's start walking with them. We've got five more Sundays of Easter, and then we come to Pentecost. And in those five Sundays of Easter, we're going to walk with five distinctives of the earliest followers of Jesus that scholars have looked back and and found. And it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun stuff. This morning, we're going to walk with their confidence in Jesus and their confidence that God was with them. We hear it in Paul this morning. Paul says, working together with God. You get that? That confidence. We are working together with God. He says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You get that little sentence? Just that little sentence. Behold, wow, look, here it is, exclamation point. Now, Greek word kairos, special time, the time to grab, the appointed time. Now is the favorable time. Literally, that word is beautiful to receive. Now is the time to beautifully to receive the day of salvation, the day of wholeness. We could translate that one little line. Behold, now this special moment, it's beautiful to receive as God's whole new world comes into your life. And friends, if you believe that, If you can believe that, then you live free. You live with confidence. You live with an inner strength. You live with hope. You live grounded, connected, stable. You live with a quiet confidence in the midst of all else. For Paul, this incredible confidence worked itself out against all kinds of odds. He says this, I've I've put the... I've put the prepositions in the way they, that it is in the Greek. So you get the rhythm of it. You'll hear the repeating, the repeating. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, here we go. In great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in truthful speech, in the power of God. Is that 13? I think. 17? 7? Great. Seven's good. Seven's the number of wholeness. It's a bunch, right? In all of these things that Paul encountered, He has this profound, deep, quiet confidence. 
through the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Do you realize what Paul is doing as he runs through this litany, as he says these amazing things? Paul is not saying, I'm okay. He's not saying that. He passed that a long time ago. Paul is not saying, in spite of the hardships we experience, we're okay. Paul is, in fact, saying something qualitatively way beyond that. He's saying that as we experience and because we experience these things, the reality of God's new creation is coming into the world through us. Not in spite of it, because of it. Because of it. As we carry on with this quiet confidence in our Lord Jesus, with living hope, in our brokenness, in our suffering, in our hardship, in those things, and because of them, God's new creation, his new world, comes back into time from the future, and it becomes more present and more real than it otherwise would have been. This, then, is why the earliest followers of Jesus wanted so desperately to be close to his story. They wanted to know who had heard his story. They wanted to hear from those people. They talked about this confidence that they had in language that may surprise us. They talked about it with the word patience, actually. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, Patience was not considered a virtue. Patience was the thing that people who had nothing, who had no life, were told to just shut up and be. Just, you know, get over it. You got no life. It'll be over soon enough. Just shut up and be patient. It was not a virtue. It's one of those terms that the earliest followers of Jesus took from the empire, subverted, and gave it new meaning infused with hope. And what they said was, we have seen God walk on the earth. We have seen what God is like. We have seen the new wholeness that God brings into people's lives. We have seen God give himself for us, take our sins and our brokenness upon himself. We have seen him with incredible confidence walk straight to death. And we have seen him vindicated and back to life. And there's something else going on that's bigger than all of that. And out of that, their confidence was so strong that Tertullian in North Africa, at one point in the early days, had to write the single, the, the first Christian treatise on a single virtue ever, and it was on patience. Do you get it? They had so much confidence that they're bursting at the seams. And Tertullian had to write to them and say, hey guys, look, I'm, I'm glad you feel urgent that's his word. I'm glad you feel the urgency because yes, the world's a mess. And yes, we've seen our Lord Jesus walk in the mess of the world. And we now see the world through his eyes with his person and his work and his love. And, and our hearts are rent by what we see. But Tertullian says to them, hey guys, you know, our urgency is a, you ready for this? It's good. 
You're going to want to hold on to this. It's a relaxed urgency. You're like, come on, Tertullian. What, what is that? It's another piece of wonderful Christian paradox. He says, it's a relaxed urgency. Our hearts are rent. But goodness is a thing that is sown and has to grow. And it takes process and it takes time. So he talks about a relaxed urgency. Tertullian actually compares it to Hercules. And he actually says to the earliest Christians, he says, you know what? Don't try to be a superhero. Don't try to run out there and fix everything and wear yourself out and run desperately from one thing to another to another. Have a sense of urgency because God cares, but it's a relaxed urgency because God's at work. And Tertullian says, if you, if you get out of that zone, then God takes the spirit away. Not in a God is mad at you kind of a way, but in a God's like, well, okay, you got it then, you carry on. When you get tired enough, come back. And that's the way that works. And he says, are you ready for the Spirit now? I'll give you my Spirit. We'll fill you back up. You can get on step with me. So Tertullian writes on patience. Gives them relaxed urgency. The earliest followers of Jesus, they carry on trying to live the life of Jesus in the midst of the world and to the world around them. And lo and behold, it starts to work. And people start to respond. And you get enough people responding that they become a threat. They're considered a threat. These people are different. They live in a different way. Just simply the communities they're forming make ripples, social ripples in the empire. And they're different. It's, a whole, you know, it's just disturbing to see these folks. So they become a threat. So under Decius, there's, there's persecutions. And then on top of persecutions comes, guess what? A plague. And under the pressures of persecutions and a plague, then people begin, Christians begin to ask other questions. And so Cyprian, the, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, he writes a treatise on the good of patience. I mean, it's kind of a really, really, no, it's real, trust this, hold on kind of thing. And Cyprian calls the followers of Jesus to remember Jesus' confidence in his passion. And the way that he remained silent before Pilate, the way that he trusted that God had a bigger story. And as Jesus gave himself for them and for us, Cyprian calls them to believe that and to rest in that and to go deep in an authentic life in Jesus. And so they hold on, and they do. And they go on a little bit longer, and they go on a few more hundred years, and eventually they become so influential that lo and behold, the unthinkable happens. The emperor becomes a Christian. And now it's like a whole new ballgame. And now the temptations have flipped, and they're other. So there's a, there's a guy who's actually the emperor's tutor, who's in the court, in the royal, the imperial court, and he is a follower of Jesus. His name's Lactantius. And Lactantius writes a seven-volume thing about what we believe. And in one of those seven volumes, he writes about patience. And he talks about patience more than he talks about anything else. And Lactantius says basically two things. And the first one he says is, look, guys, I know we're in power now, but it doesn't work that way. And he says to them, if we use the power that we have to compel people to worship, you know it won't be real. And he pleads with the early Christians not to give in to the temptation to lean on the political power. And he says to them, 
basically keep your confidence in God and all the things we've seen that God has been doing and God will keep on doing them. And he says, trust is winsome. And our trust in God and his process in others, our patience in that way will work and God will continue to do his amazing things. And Lactantius also says to them, we, the body of Christ, the church, the, the presence of Jesus in the world, we've always been so different. We've always been, you know, like Paul said, we've been rich and poor, male and female, slave and free. We've been all these different people who there's no reason why they would be together. You can't deconstruct it. Because the only reason why they're together is they come together around the person of the resurrected Jesus. And Lactantius says to them, we cannot lose that. We must not lose that. He says the church is meant to be of people of every sex, race, and age. He says every sex, every generation, every family and, and district are coming to faith because truth has its own power to prevail. So friends, welcome to Trinity's first day. Perhaps the most anticlimactic opening day sermon in history, a sermon on patience. I promise you, I will give you plenty of opportunities to, to exercise patience in the weeks to come. That's not exactly the kind of patience they're talking about. I want to say there's something of an equation around the way the earliest followers of Jesus talked about patience, or a ratio. It works like this. If the church withdraws into itself, if the church is afraid, if the church grows a cold heart to the world around it, then this patience becomes, yeah, it becomes just a waiting for heaven. It becomes just an excuse. It becomes something like that. But if the church is living the incarnate body of Jesus into the world around it, if the world is bumping into an authentic experience of Jesus through the body of Christ, then what they're saying about patience is actually an expression of confidence in God. And it makes sense. And it says, we live the story, we live our part, and Lord, we're trusting that you're at work because we have experienced your risen life. And all it really takes of the church is a humble heart of love to say, Jesus, we want you to be manifest. And we want you to be the warm glow around which we gather. Let's try to bring it home just a little bit. There's a lot in, in my life that's not the way I wish it were. People I love who are not well. People I love who are in hardship. People I love who are lonely. People I love who are aging. There's all kinds of things, just personally. I mean, people that I love. Even if I don't look at the news and I don't look at the world around me, there's plenty, plenty out there. But just even in my own heart, you gut-wrenching things I wish were different that are beyond my ability to control. And I want to say, friends, it's a punch in the gut every day. It's a tear of the heart all the time. And yet I do, I do know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I believe in Jesus' new world. 
And I believe in his church and I believe in his kingdom. And he will do more than we can ask or imagine, and maybe not exactly on our timeline or in the way we wish. And he will do incredible things in us, and he will be present with us in the meantime. There's a famous story of one of the earliest missionaries to go into inland Asia into Myanmar. Adoniram Judson. He's a pioneering missionary into Myanmar. He's arrested and he's hanging upside down in prison. And he says, the future is as bright as the promises of God. I haven't been put in prison yet. I'm not hanging upside down. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And you've heard me say this one before. I'm going to keep saying it over and over. Leslie Newbigin in India a teeming nation, so many issues, so many people, so much suffering in so many ways, asked if he was a pessimist or an optimist. And he said, I am neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Friends, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. I invite you just to imagine Jesus, the risen Jesus. Just imagine the risen Jesus coming to you. That's no small thing, but take a moment and imagine Jesus in his resurrected self coming to you, even to you. Share something with him that makes you afraid, anxious, that you feel like blocks your freedom and your confidence. Can you imagine him just picking you up, giving you a hug? Just giving you a big bear hug in his resurrected living self heard in the gospel lesson that he could he had a body he could eat he's got the nail marks in his hands he's got the spear mark in his side it's all for you just let him give you a hug come Jesus you are our hope we love you Lord